Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Prolific fiddle player, golf professional, and son of a Hall of Fame fiddler, Johnny Ward is a member of the bluegrass supergroup, the Earls of Leicester, whose mission is to promote the timeless sound of Leicester Flat and Earl Scruggs and the Foggy Mountain Boys. With the Earls, Johnny helps preserve his father, Paul Warren's classic fiddle style. In this episode of Season 2 of Walls of Time, Daniel talks with Johnny backstage at Memorial Hall in Cincinnati, a mere blocks away from where Flat and Scruggs recorded some of their earliest records, including foggy mountain breakdown. They chat about Johnny's time growing up around some of the founding fathers of bluegrass, as well as Johnny's journey of carrying on his father's traditional flavor of fiddling. Johnny also talks about his career in the golf industry as both a player and instructor. Today, we welcome the great fiddler Johnny Warren to the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. So, Mr. Warren, what's it like for you to get to play your dad's fiddle in a band that honors his legacy with the Foggy Mountain Boys? Wow. You know, I just, uh, I don't really think about it that often, some, ever, unless someone like, you know, you ask me about it. Every once in a while, someone will ask me about it. But it's, uh, it really is cool. I mean, that's, I don't know how the way to put it, but it's just a really cool thing. Uh, sometimes in playing it, uh, when, I, when I'm playing a lot, really wakes up and when I feel good playing it sometimes it's like my dad's there with me you know playing it it's uh and I can feel it once and once in a while you know every ever so often I, that feeling will kind of come up on me and it's uh, it's really cool uh when it does and um uh, and I really feel honored to be able to to have his fiddle and be able to play it in this music um you know because this fiddle is where, where this fiddle belongs is playing this music yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. What made your dad's fiddle style so unique? You know, I, I've thought about that a lot, and I don't know I have a real definitive answer, but, uh, you know, he played with Johnny and Jack and Kitty Wells uh, way back there before I was born, and uh, he played a different fiddle then, but, uh, you know, he grew up in Hickman County, which is kind of west of Nashville just a little bit, and his style sort of changed over the years too, but his biggest influence was fiddling Arthur Smith, who... Uh, Recent, I mean, he used to come to our house when I was a kid, and recently uh, my dad had an 8-millimeter video uh, when it was brand new back in the 60s, and he videoed everything, but uh, I, I had those run off onto a DVD recently and saw uh, some of those, and uh, Fiddling Arthur Smith was out in our front yard with his fiddle fiddling. Of course, you couldn't hear any audio with it, but he was, he was tearing something up. But I remember Fiddling Arthur Smith myself and got to meet him as a little kid. And uh, but anyway, that's who my dad was influenced by the most. And then, of course, when he went to work with Flat and Scruggs, uh, you know, it just kind of evolved just a little bit. But uh, I think my dad was not a bluegrass fiddle player. Uh, he was a uh, old time fiddler, uh, kind of with overdrive. And uh, you know, when you put that fiddle with Uncle Josh's bluesy dobro playing back in the time when there really wasn't anybody playing dobro in a band and Earl Scruggs, it was very, very different at that time. Now, you, a lot of the people that are listening to bluegrass now that are young people don't realize how different that was at that time. But uh, that's where that uh, his style fit right with that. I think the chemistry of that band was very, very unique at that time, and I think that's what made it so so great. Um, so you think the fact that your, uh, your dad played more of an old-timey style, which... Uh, almost it had kind of a barn dance feel to a point um, 
that really, I guess, would stand out, particularly with Flatt and Scruggs playing the Opry and playing against, uh, you know, right up next to, you know, some fiddlers that played more of a country or a, a country and western style, having an old-timey fiddler right up next to the, the hyperdrive of the Flatt and Scruggs sound in general just had to really stand out. Yeah, I, I think so. And, 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 and I'm not really sure. You know, I've listened to a lot of the – I love what he played with Johnny and Jack, too, you know. Oh, yeah. That stuff had a that the music they played was really uh, it was so nice and I don't listen to that a lot anymore. I mean I've just kind of got hooked. I grew up. He had already left Johnny and Jack. Uh, he and Benny Martin, you know, traded jobs back in 1954. I guess early 54. And uh, anyway, when my dad went to work with Lester and Earl, I was born in 1956. So that's kind of uh, you know I wasn't. An a historian, so to speak. It was more like I just lived it. So when I was born, that's all I saw was my dad playing with Flat and Scruggs. And then uh, obviously in 69, when they broke up, I was 13 years old. I think it was on my birthday in 1969 when they when they broke really? up, mm, February 22nd. And uh, uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, Flat and the Nashville Grass went on from there. And, uh, and my dad and I actually got a lot closer after Lester and Earl broke up because Lester and the Nashville Grass, they worked a lot, but they didn't work as much. Yeah. And so he was home some during the week, and we got to spend time together, and that's when he and I really got to spend time. And I got, uh, you know, he showed me a lot of old fiddle licks, and we would sit down, and and uh, he would show me a lot of things. Uh, and I'm really uh, thankful, uh, you know, for, for those times are really a lot of precious memories. I mean, he's been gone now 40-some-odd years, but uh, I still miss him. What was it like growing up as a kid around Flat and Scruggs and the Foggy Mountain Boys? Uh, you know, I, I never went on the road with them at all. Uh, but when they, they played around town, of course, they did their TV and radio shows in Nashville. And my dad would usually take me if it was during the summer when I was out of school and wasn't in school, he would take me with him. And uh, it was pretty cool. I mean, they all had different personalities. They had a great time. I mean, a band that played as much as they did uh, they really, their chemistry even uh, uh, off the stage was so good. They got along well. Uh, I remember they had a lot of fun. Uh, you know, Jake, being the comedian, would cut up with me. And uh, and Josh, I spent a lot of time at Josh's house. Me and his son, Billy, were, were very good friends. And I would spend a lot of time over at Josh's. So he was sort of like an uncle to me, in a way. And, um, and his wife, Evelyn, were always so sweet to me. Um, uh, Earl, same way. I can remember a, a story one time later on after uh, when I was in my teens after Lester and Earl broke up, and I went over to Earl's to, to hook up with his son Steve, and we were recording some some music there, and Steve was a really becoming a very, very good banjo player in his own right. And I went over before Steve had gotten home one day, and, and Earl came to the front door, and, and uh, he, he said, Hey, Johnny. And I said, Hey, Earl. I said, I'm waiting on Steve to get home. And he said, uh, he said, well, he'll be home in, in a little while. He's not home yet. He said, but uh, I had my fiddle case, man. He said, but come on in and we'll pick a while if you don't care who you pick with. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> I thought, you know, coming from Earl Scruggs. But Earl was always so nice to me. And, uh, of course, Curly Seckler, I worked with him in the 80s uh, for a while. And then, uh, long story there, but he and my mother met uh, after Curly's wife had passed away. And my dad had been passed for probably 20 years and uh, they met at, uh, at a mall walking one day and and uh, anyway they they ran into each other and three years later they end up getting married and stayed married for 20 years and of course curly passed 
it uh, two days after his 98th birthday back a couple of years ago. But he was, uh, I'd always go visit mom and him, and, and he was just a wonderful person. And uh, uh, I can't say enough good things about it. it, was a, it I had a great childhood, yeah. yeah. As a kid, did you realize how big of a deal Flatt and Scruggs were to other people? You know, I did. I did, but it didn't, I mean, but at the same time, it was just my dad, you know, because my dad was always the same. But what was really unique in that time, and I and I have to really think about it sometimes uh, now, but, you know, back in the 60s, there was only three, basically three channels that you picked up uh, TV. Yeah. And uh, so if someone was on TV, I mean, you, you knew they were on, you would see them. It wasn't like a... Uh, 500 cable yeah, channels. Yeah, no such thing as cable or satellite or No, anything. nothing yeah. like that. So you only had three channels that you could pick up. And, of course, Flat and Scruggs was at 6 o'clock, had a 30-minute show at 6 o'clock primetime on Saturday night. So anybody that had a TV saw them, you know. So when I would go out and even go to the grocery store or anywhere, it was like, uh, you know, it was like everybody knew they, would, they, they, they were the face. I mean, everybody knew who they were. And I can remember one time locally there they had a – concert at uh, Centennial Park at their band shell and if you've ever seen any of their songbooks, I looked at one recently and picked it up and there was a picture that one of the photographers there had taken and they had estimated that there were 20 some thousand people that were at that concert there and the crowd was I mean they were like just pinched in there like ants and they were as far as you could see yeah. and, uh, and it was like that, that you know it was pretty incredible really. Wow. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Did you realize what a uh, a trailblazer that your dad was for fiddlers that would come after him? Um, or would, you've said he was just your dad and he just played the fiddle. I mean, you didn't know anything different. But had you noticed that, you know, he was, uh, he was really blazing a trail for people that would follow? You know, I didn't really think about that too much at that time. I, you know, as a kid, you just kind of live in the moment. And... Uh, but uh, you know, later on, it's I've noticed it a lot as I go out. Um, people still sometimes that haven't heard the Earls. Uh, you know, I've, I've played in town recently where somebody'd be there and they'd say, you know, ask me my name and I tell them who I am and they say, Are you any kin to Paul Warren? It's like, yeah, well, he's my dad, you know. And it's like it's it, it's kind of interesting that still a lot of the old people still remember that and, it, and it's cool when we're out playing a lot of times uh me running into people that are older folks that had been to a flat and scrub show and they'll tell me something uh, maybe unique where they met my dad and something that he had, he had done or said or something kind that he had done and it's still you know as a as a, as a son i'll be soon be 64 but it's still like uh, it's nice to hear good things about your dad yeah how did your dad first, uh, you said he grew up listening to Fiddlin' Arthur Smith, but how did he first get interested in learning how to play the fiddle? Uh, actually, it was Arthur Smith. He, his, his dad played fiddle, my grandfather, who passed away before I was born, so I never got to know him, but uh, I'd heard that he kept a fiddle in the drawer, and, and actually my dad had told the story that he told him when he left the house to leave his fiddle alone which was obviously, we knew what was going to happen. My dad was going to pick it up when he left, and he started playing some. But they had a radio, and they picked up the, they could pick up the Opry, and my dad would uh, listen to them on the Opry, and, uh, and, and that's where he learned some of the tunes. And then also, Arthur had moved, I think, from maybe in Cheatham County in Tennessee. I'm thinking I may be wrong on this, but he moved to Dixon County, maybe with his work, which was closer, I think, maybe within 10 miles or so, of where my dad lived, so he would ride his bicycle over to uh, to to see li and listen to Arthur Smith play, 
and and he told me that Arthur would play as long as 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 he would sit there and listen to him, and so even as a as a young boy playing, uh, he learned a lot from Arthur then. And then, of course, later on, after my dad became popular and was working with Flat and Scruggs, and Arthur got older and had basically retired, that's when I got to meet Arthur because he would come to our house and sometimes come and stay with us for two or three nights or so. And my, he and my dad would sit and they'd share old fiddle tunes and things, you know. And and uh, and so I, uh, but they, they remained friends for pretty much their entire life. Yeah, your dad was such a great from what I've learned was such a great purveyor of a bunch of those old, old fiddle tunes that uh, you, you don't hear anymore now, but even back then were, were new to audiences because they hadn't heard them before, but they were kind of oral tradition type tunes. Um, how did your dad learn those and what, what drew him particularly to those uh, old melodies? You know, he, I, I don't really know exactly, except, you know, there's a lot of, um, he would get mail from some of the Texas fiddlers and, Canadian fiddlers and fiddlers from all over the United States because they traveled pretty much all over the United States and he would run into fiddlers almost everywhere he'd go and so I guess he would share tunes with them and they would say well I'll I'll put some down and I'll send them to you and they would send them and he would learn them Uh, so you know about shoot I don't know maybe uh, a year before he passed he was was pretty sick and he had retired uh, from the road and ever so often he'd feel good enough that he'd say, won't you come in and, and get the guitar? And I'm not a guitar player, but he'd kind of show me the chords to some of the fiddle tunes, and he would uh, put down he put down some of those old fiddle tunes. A lot of them probably went to the grave with him, but uh, there's quite a few of them that I pulled out and learned when I did uh, Charlie Cushman, and I did a tribute to my dad, a, a, a volume one and volume two. But in both of those, and especially in volume one, I've got some of those old tunes that I learned from him during that, that uh, time frame. What are some of uh, your particular favorite fiddle tunes you learned from your dad that maybe folks aren't as familiar with, you know? Well, it's, you know, I don't know. Some of them have such funny names. There's one it's, that uh, I love. It's called, Oh, Joe Can't Play the Fiddle Because the Bow's Too Short and Broke in the Middle. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, and then there's a lot of old tunes uh, that, that, that those names uh, is like, where in the world did, the, did, did who named these tunes? But a lot of them are really, really nice melodic tunes. Um, I'll tell you something else that he did, and he played a lot that a, a lot most people don't know is another one of his uh, fiddling idols, really, and a really good friend of his was from Hickman County as well, was fiddling uh, Howdy Forrester, who played with Roy Acuff, you know, for many, many years. And a lot of people listening to Roy play, uh, I mean, not Roy, but uh, Howdy play live. Uh, Howdy was, you know, and he played, uh, I think he cut, was it Earl's Breakdown with Flat and Scruggs? Maybe, yeah. I, I think, think he so. did. Yeah. Uh, which probably a lot of people don't know, but he uh, he played a lot of those hornpipes and, and uh, a lot of those old... Uh, uh, fiddle tunes that were obscure but very difficult to play in uh, in odd uh, keys and uh, my dad loved that stuff and it, it, it was so hard to play but it, they weren't show tunes so it were it was tunes that Flat and Scruggs and the Foggy Mountain Boys wouldn't showcase during their shows because people wouldn't really enjoy it because it's it doesn't have that show type flavor to them but fiddlers enjoyed those yeah. because they knew how hard they were to play and they respected that you know and so I, I grew up listening to that and my dad loved Howdy Forrester 
and and I loved how he's playing and and I played some of those tunes and some of them are, are really hard and it's uh I need to go back in there and kind of learn them and uh, still go back over and try to learn them again but and if, if somebody listening to this hasn't heard you know some of Howdy Forrester stuff they need to go in there and find that and and listen to it as well it's great you mentioned a bunch of them old fiddle tunes and you mentioned how you and Charlie Cushman did a tribute you know some tribute albums to your dad um did your dad grow up hearing fiddle banjo tunes like he and Earl used to perform, or how did that start becoming a part of Lester and Earl's show? I had heard that uh, that he and Earl were just sitting around on the bus, maybe one day playing, uh, or in a you know some of the schoolhouses they'd play just back warming up. And I don't know if you know Flat heard it or whatever, and said, "Man, those are that's that's really good." And and they 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 did it featured it on a show or two and a lot of the old timers really liked it and so they got to where they started featuring it on a lot of their shows you know because the old timers did like that so much but uh like flat said on the carnegie hall album said when they get a fiddle and banjo together it was kind of called a band because you know it, back then it was hard to get maybe four or five people to sit down and play but they could uh and of course back when my bad my dad started playing mostly all he heard was claw hammer style yeah. banjo playing and my and his mother my grandmother played uh, some claw hammer banjo and, and I'd never heard my dad ever play any of that and on the, one of the Flat and Scruggs videos that the Hall of Fame there, the Country Hall of Fame put out, uh, they put out 10 volumes on one of the TV shows, Earl gave my dad the banjo and he played a claw hammer style tune on one of the videos that's at the Country Hall of Fame now. Uh, and, and he played the heck out of it. And a matter of fact, like the, maybe the next TV show, String Bean was going to be on it. And, and uh, Flat said something on the next show, said String, he said, and, uh, uh, something about Paul Warren's playing this stuff now. And, and String said, he's trying to steal my licks or something. <laughs> but uh, he, he learned that from his mother. Wow. Know? Yeah, and I didn't know that until, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, no wonder then that he could get the, uh, the fiddle banjo tune sounding just right. Then. Yeah, yeah. Women love men who care about their hair, and nothing makes a man's hair look better than Samson's hair care. Hi, I'm Santana Bell, and let me tell you, Daniel Mullins' hair was a mess before he started using Samson's. Trust me, I'm his girlfriend, but Samson's has made a world of difference. It holds all day. Even after a day of riding roller coasters, his hair still looked great. I couldn't believe it. But even with the all-day hold, I could still easily run my fingers through his hair without it feeling stiff or greasy. But the best part is the smell. It's not over powering, but it gives off a distinctive, pleasant aroma that lasts all day. Honestly, a man could stop wearing cologne as long as he wore Samson's. It smells that good. Head to samsonshaircare.com to get some hair pomade for the man in your life. Neither of you will be disappointed. Use code bluegrass at checkout to save 10%. That's samsonshaircare.com, code bluegrass to receive 10% off. samsonshaircare.com, code bluegrass. What about the fiddle banjo repertoire and the marriage of those two instruments makes it so special? Wow, you know, I'm not a banjo player, but I, I play a lot of those tunes. And I tell you, uh, Charlie Cushman has studied Earl Scruggs and his music uh, for for many, many years. And uh, and I don't know, many, many, you know, back years ago when I met Charlie. That's one of the things that we did. I would sit down and play some. He'd say, play this tune or that tune, and he would just start playing along with it. And, and that, 
you know, it's like when you would go to a high part, maybe on the fiddle to play a high part, he'd move up into a high part and play something in that register that goes along with it and kind of matches it. And uh, he's, he's really good at that. And we, we don't play many of those on our shows. Uh, it's one of those things that it just seems like um, in this era and generation that we're in, it's, it's not quite as popular as it was back in that time. But uh, every once in a while, you know, somebody breaks a string or something, we'll feature one like that. So it kind of catches us off guard once in a while when we do it. But I still enjoy doing those. Yeah. When did you first, uh, you said you were about 13 when you started learning how to play the fiddle. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I picked it up when I was six years old and, and played uh, at school, PTA uh, meetings and things like that. I would play in front of people once in a while, and I could play two or three tunes. And at about when I was eight years old, uh, the Beatles came to the U.S., and I saw that, and everybody was just in this Beatle mania thing, and I kind of got hung up in it too. And so I laid the fiddle down for uh, quite a few years, and then when I was and, and picked up an electric guitar, and we put a, a rock band together, and we're playing school functions and things. And then finally one day I just thought, you know, I, I do enjoy this music I'm playing, but I really want to play the fiddle. And so my dad came in off the road one time and I remember sitting back in a back bedroom and I had a Joe Green fiddle vinyl on and I was trying to play Daly's Reel I'd forgotten I was trying to learn Daly's Reel which is a tune in B flat which is for fiddle players I didn't realize at the time it's like wonder why I'm having so much trouble with this tune trying to play it my dad got home off the road and he came with this big smile on his face you know and he he said you might want to try something in A or G you know and uh, but uh, but I ended up recording Daly's Reel on my first fiddle album uh, back in 1983 that I put out. And that's probably one of the first tunes that I actually heard was a Joe Green version of that. Wow. Do you think that you were drawn to the fiddle because your dad played it, or was there something else about about it um, that drew you to it? I don't know. You know, probably both. But uh, I grew up listening to Flat and Scruggs because I I lived Flat and Scruggs. And... and, uh, and I would just go to the radio shows. I'd go to the TV tapings, and I heard that. But I didn't go to bluegrass, you know, other venues or go hear other bluegrass shows because usually my dad was busy. Usually I'd go with him when he was working, and then I was home, and he was on the road, and I couldn't go hear other things and, um, and didn't really search like it Flat, out. It's not like Flat and Scruggs just played two or three dates a weekend. They'd be gone for weeks at a time. Yeah. So there's no way you could hop on board the bus and miss a month of school you know yes but i really but i guess my point is i really never listened to other bluegrass and so it was just kind of uh i guess uh, programmed i was programmed that way a little bit just listening to my dad's style of fiddling so i guess it came sort of natural because that's really all i heard uh a lot of other fiddlers are as i've mentioned uh and, and many more that i haven't mentioned that my dad really loved hearing play and he respected um and and I do as well. There's so many great fiddle players out there now. It's just amazing. And what I had really hoped, and and when I started playing this music with with the Earls, was that some kids that that are that are out there now are hearing the fiddlers that are out there now, and they need to listen to that. But a lot of them never got to hear Paul Warren play, and that style was a style that I was afraid that might just finally go away and die off. Uh, because uh, people were listening to Flat and Scruggs songs, but they weren't really listening and trying to play. They didn't hear enough of it to try to mimic that type of fiddle. And so I'm, I run into a lot of the smaller kids now that are coming up that are fiddle players that are listening, and I'm thinking, you know, if I could just 
have just a small enough role that it would keep that type of fiddle alive, that would be all worth it to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you started playing fiddle as a young teenager. How old were you when you started playing with Curly Seckler in the Nashville Grass? Oh, wow. I was probably uh, uh, probably in my early 20s, I guess. Uh, Tater Tate was uh, – Lester had passed in 78, and Tater Tate uh, played with them for a while. So I guess it was in the early 80s probably for a few years. And then uh, uh, Kenny Ingram came back in with the band. I think he left for a while, and he came back in. And me and Kenny Ingram, Curly Seckler – Willis Spears and uh, bass player Bob Rogers out of Chattanooga. We had uh, a band that, uh, and we played played quite a bit uh, through that stretch. And then I had my, my first child was born in 1983, and uh, I just didn't want to be gone like my dad was. And he had mentioned to me one time, he said, as, as successful as he was in his fiddling, uh, and he loved it, I don't know that he really meant it, but he really hoped for me that I wouldn't, do that that I would be home uh and watch my kids and spend more time with them and so I kind of I took his advice and I did that and um uh and I don't regret it but uh you know they got grown and once they did it's kind of like okay and when this opportunity came along uh if it would have came along 20 years ago I wouldn't have done it uh but it came around it came along at the right time and uh Jerry Sean uh Charlie uh you know all those guys um, uh, are are wonderful, wonderful people, and I respect their music so much. And for them to respect what Flatt and Scruggs doing, and and want me to play alongside them in this band, is a real. It's always been a real honor to me uh, to be able to do that. And uh, you know, I don't know how long this band will even last. We, it's it's lasted way longer than any of us probably thought because when we did it, we did it because it was fun, and we're still doing it because it's fun, and uh, people. Tend, the people seem to like it, you know, and and uh, and we just decided when it got to where it was work that we wouldn't do it anymore, and so uh, we're, we are playing a slower schedule this year, but uh, but uh, we had a lot of fun, we've had a lot of fun tonight, and this, we're out on this road trip here, and it's uh, I'm missing it already. Yeah. The the idea or the nucleus for uh, the concept of the Earls of Leicester kind of came from one of those sessions for your and uh, one of your and Charlie's albums, didn't it? It did. Uh, after we, uh, volume two, uh, tribute to Paul Warren, volume two, we cut, uh, what was Earl Scruggs's, uh, banjo tune, um, oh, not ground speed, uh, I've drawn a blank, but anyway, we, we cut it and we left a place for Jerry to come in and do it. And, and, uh, Jerry came in we said, I'd like for you to, usually when Jerry comes in, it's like, just do whatever you want to do. But he came in and I, and I hated to ask him to do something else but i said jerry would you mind playing some uncle josh on this and the big smile came across his face is like yeah and he sat down there and just drilled josh's break uh on it and and after afterwards we went and sat down uh in the studio and he said you know i've got this idea and anyway that's when he first came up with the idea but as a lot of musicians do they have ideas but they never follow through on it so i just kind of went through one ear kind of i mean it was kind of nice that i knew he liked it but i figured it would probably die off somewhere and he called us called me one day and he said hey let's let's try to do this and uh we went over to his place and hooked up and we did about one line of uh i can't remember what we did it was uh, maybe on my mind or or one of those tunes and 
and Sean just quit singing. And, he, and we all just stopped and said, yeah, this is going to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that had to be pretty cool for you to hear that sound done that way for the first time since, uh, what, 69? Yeah, and, and you know, things like that, um, I'm a believer in, I, in things being divine. And, and I'll tell you how it really came about. He did come in the studio and hear that, but we had never, we would have never been in the studio had I not recarpeted the upstairs of my house and I had to clean a closet out and all these old reel-to-reel uh, uh, video, uh, audio tapes were there. And uh, so I took them and had them baked because they were so old and brittle. And I started learning these fiddle tunes, my dad, and that's what gave us the idea to do the the the, the tributes to my dad. And that's and then of course Jerry came in later, and and that's when he heard us, and and then the Earls came from that. Volume two, you said you were trying to place what tune it was. Was it Randy Lynn Rag? Randy Lynn Rag. That's Road what Blues? it was. It okay. was Randy Lynn Rag. Yeah, and he played Lonesome Road Blues on it too. But when he played Randy Lynn Rag, I mean, it was like it just sounded like Earl and Paul and Josh playing it, you know, and it was so cool because. Uh, I mean, there's in in, in not, maybe not Charlie and, and Jerry's uh, area, but in my area, there's there's a whole lot better fiddle players out there, but probably can't play that particular thing quite like I can, and I embrace that because it's yeah. what my dad played, and uh, and when I heard that with them, it's like God, this is one, this is so much fun. You know, it's awesome because, uh, you know, I'm a radio man and dad's a disc jockey and he plays our bluegrass every day on the air when he's not on the road. And I can still remember when volume one and then volume two of those records came in and uh, volume two in particular, when you had those cuts that had Jerry playing like Josh, um, you know, this is before the Earls or anything. We'd play those and, you know, we had little old men that grew up listening to flat and scrugs on the radio as boys coming in wanting to buy those records. They said, man, <laughs> they said we had to, I, there's one in particular, um, that he said, man, I had to sit there and pause a little bit. Cause it, I knew it wasn't Lester and Earl and Josh and Paul, but it sounded just like it. And, and so it, when, uh, it was not long after that, when, you know, I got word that the Earls were going to be forming and, uh, yeah. getting able to spread that word because he said, man, they, they ought to do a whole record. You know, they, it, you weren't the only one that had those aha moments. It was happening for anybody that heard, heard those records. They knew that that was something special. Well, and it, and it, uh, and the, the music part of it, I'm not, I'm not saying it actually came really easy, but we had to really listen and, and do our homework on it. But it, it wasn't that hard to do because Charlie studied Earl Scruggs's and Flatten Scruggs's whole life as I have. And Jerry, too, for the most part. But uh, we studied it hard. But trying to get someone that could sing Lester's parts was going to be something that's like, who, who can do that? And uh, Jerry's wife, Jill, uh, kind of directed. He said, what about – he was thinking about it. He said, what about Sean Camp? And, and I mean, Sean is a wonderful singer and songwriter. But he, he embraced uh, doing this. And where probably a lot of people wouldn't. Uh, he didn't let his pride and ego get in the way of that, and he just embraced it. and uh, And I really uh, love him and respect him for that. Yeah. Um, of course, you know you'd grown up playing, uh, f- learning fiddle from your dad, playing a bunch of those old tunes, and you did two tribute records to your dad's fiddle plan. But once you got in the Earls and you, as a unit, started studying Flat and Scruggs mu- music as a band 
and how all the pieces and parts fit together, did you gain an even greater appreciation for their music and your dad's plan? I, I do. I mean, I still hear things uh, occasionally that maybe I hadn't heard before. But we went in and would listen to, uh, for instance, I mean, if you listen to the to the Flat and Scruggs at Carnegie Hall album, which we all have in this band, and some of the songs on there we do, and it's like, that's the way they did it. That's the way they did it. But, but we listen to live shows that they've done that they might have done the night before somewhere and they played it differently. Yeah. So it's uh but but the spirit of how they play and the way they leave holes and uh and let it breathe and and don't cover up certain things and play at certain times and leave other areas open I think at some point what I would really like to do is as much as I love the Flat and Scruggs music the next thing with this band would be play our own music, uh, something maybe that Sean's written, and or I've—I mean, I've written a lot of fiddle tunes and, and a few tunes, and Charlie and everybody in the band's got the talent kind of to do that. But do some songs, but do it in the spirit of Flat and Scruggs, and it would be like something new that Flat and Scruggs would have done, and and listen to someone say, "I never heard Flat and Scruggs do that, but it sounds just like it." And it's like, well, they never did do it, you know, and that would be a real cool thing, I think, to do. You're so right on uh, the fact that. They didn't have this exact carbon copy show every night, you no. know. Um, is if you if you uh, if folks out there have heard live Flat and Scruggs recordings, aside from Carnegie Hall and Vanderbilt, like you said, that's just the way they did it that night, or even their studio recordings, that's just the way they did it that day. That day I mean, yeah, every show is a different show, but you're right. The spirit in which they play things is something that. It takes a whole nother level of understanding rather than just learning how to copy something note for note. Yes, and, and their choreography, which we don't uh, obviously uh, try to uh, get it down to a, to a precise uh, thing, so to speak. But, uh, you know, I, basically I do most of the moving in, in that, but uh, moving in and out and trying to move some uh, kind of picks up a little bit of what they're, if you saw one of their shows, that's what you'd have seen. Because generally they would work off... Uh, two or three mics and uh so they had to work their mics and and like a lot of groups did back then they had to mix it themselves you know just by standing away from the mics and then stepping into the mic and uh and you listen to a carnegie hall album and it sounds like a a perfect mix because they knew how to do that and and their radio shows obviously the same way they'd done it so much and it also added such a dynamic element to their live show that was really unique for that time especially in country music um i mean now you'll see big hot rod productions with backup dancers and moving around and wireless mics, people running all over the stage. But back then, there really weren't such a thing as wireless mics. So there, you know, most people were having to stand next to a microphone on a stand. So the fact that, as you said, they could mix themselves, but had that motion visual element to their shows took it to the next level versus hearing them on record. Yeah, yeah, it really did, and and you know they could just look at each other, and it was it's kind of interesting watching some of those TV shows that the Country Hall of Fame put out. I think there's 20 shows, and some of them are spliced and put together. But uh, I was at probably most of those shows because they they would tape those usually in the evening, and uh, and we would go in there and watch them tape those. But uh, you, they could look at each other, and there's it's kind of like with musicians now. You know, if you if you've played with somebody a lot. You can look at them and they they or they can look at me and, and you can read their mind. You know what they're telling you because you've played with them so much and that's that's a real cool element of this music. Yeah. 
Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with the Self Journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the Self Journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code Bluegrass to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code Bluegrass, to save 15% off your first purchase. Now, uh, you, you said when your kids were born, you steered clear of going out on the road as a fiddle player, but you are probably the only bluegrass musician I know that also happens to be a professional golf instructor. <laughs> well. When did your passion for golf start? When I was a kid, I, I started playing when I was a young teenager. And uh, long story short, I, I uh, started working at a golf course when I was a teenager. And did your dad play golf? No, he he didn't play golf at all. He, how did how did you first get interested in the game? Uh, my brother had an old set of clubs, and he really wasn't playing either. There was a neighbor across the street that played a lot of golf, and he saw me out hitting one day and took me with him. And and there was another little golf course over close to the where I lived that uh, you could go out and. Uh, there was two or three of us that wanted to try to play. I don't know what really got us started, but we all went out and it's like, you know, I played other sports and played basketball in high school and baseball and 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 like those. And I thought, well, I'll try golf. I mean, ball's sitting still. Surely I can hit it. And it was it was so hard. And it's like things that were hard back then really hooked me. If I couldn't do something, I wanted to do it. Just like Daly's real, right? <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, so we, I started playing and I went to work at this golf course and uh, my wife and I, we were dating, and I, we married when we were, uh, she was 18, I was 19, and uh, and uh, 40 years later, we're together, but uh, a lot of people thought that wouldn't work, so I ended up, we got married, and I went to work, and worked at the golf course, and instead of going to college, so I, I regret the fact that I didn't go to college, I really kind of missed out on that aspect of of my life, but uh, I wouldn't have given up what I what I gained out of it, I wouldn't give it up at all, if I had it to do over, I'd do it again, that, that would probably be my only regret, but um, yeah, and then after this, after the Earls got together, our first album won a Grammy, and in, in our the PGA of America, which has been in existence since I think 1916, they 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 heard about it and called me right after we got home and did an article, and they researched it and said that they didn't think that another PGA professional had ever won a Grammy. So I think I've got that honor of being the only one to ever <laughs> win a Grammy. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. What's the uh, what's the best job? What's the worst job you've had to have at a golf course? Oh, wow. I mean, the best job is what I do now. I teach uh, on my own golf academy, and I've been teaching full-time uh, for, uh, you know, 20-some years. The first 20 years I worked there, I worked on the grounds, which was kind of cool because it helped me understand the business of golf. So I didn't play on tour. I wasn't, I wasn't good enough, really, to play uh, out on tour. It's something as every kid dreams of doing, and that was probably my earliest dream was playing professional golf. Uh, and I became a golf professional, uh, but uh, not a professional golfer. And there's a difference, but, um, but my worst job probably shoot. I don't know. In the mornings, once in a while, I would get there before uh, right as the sun would come up and have to water green sometimes. And back then, you had to do it manually. And sometimes you'd try to turn on one of those 
little uh, tea things and it would come loose in the ground and you'd be out there a cold morning and have to stick your arm up to the shoulder down in a mud hole not knowing what was down in there trying to get it back together and, and uh, yes yeah, so I've done a lot of that too but uh, but it's been great uh, golf and music through those two avenues I've made countless friendships I can't even begin to tell you the people that I've met and still meet and uh, get to meet them in a one-on-one type thing and get to know people. And uh, it, there's golf and music are, are wonderful. I mean, it's just I've lived a blessed life. And I've told people before, if I never drew another breath, I mean, people could come and celebrate at my funeral because I don't want them to be sad when they, when they come to mind because I've had a wonderful life. What are some of the biggest uh, – people often talk about – lessons life lessons they learned through the game of golf what are some of the biggest lessons in life you've learned through golf well i mean i, I remember a, a, the the man i first went to work for um i respect very much jimmy rager is his name and, and he's still he's in his 80s now but i still talk to him once in a while but he he said one time i can remember someone was talking about cheating at golf and he said you know anybody would cheat at golf will cheat at anything and I, I've kind of watched that over the years, and, and you can go on the golf course and, and play around the golf, and you learn a whole lot about a person when they're out there. But it teaches you uh, honesty, uh, integrity, um, you know, how to treat people, uh, how to treat the golf course. Uh, I mean, it, it, the list goes on and on. And there's a, there's a uh, in the PGA, there's a thing called the first tee that probably a lot of people see advertised maybe on TV now, but a lot of the states have their own individual. We have one in Nashville called the First Tee Foundation, and uh, and through my son uh, who passed away in a car accident in 2011, they have scholarships that they give in his name uh, through what's called the Vinnie Leaks First Tee, and it's a lot of kids that can't afford to play uh, golf, and and they 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 actually give scholarships to get them out there so that they can play wow. competitive golf. And I've watched a lot of those kids, and I go every year and sit down, and they'll they'll tell me just what that tour's meant to them, and wow. and they're going to go to school and and do this or that because of the first tee and and what that means, and and that means so much to me. I, I've heard it said before that golf is the last bastion of gentlemanly conduct. So. Yeah, but it really it really is, and uh, I, I love the game of golf, and and. Uh, and, I, and I'm just so thankful that I've been able uh, and been blessed to be a part of it. Who were some of your favorite golfers, both past and present? My favorite golfer growing up, I've never met him, was Jack Nicklaus. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, but but Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, kind of that was when I first started playing. But uh, Jack is still, you know, uh, Tigers. Uh, Jack's name still pops up pops up because he's won more majors than anybody in the history of the game and and uh, Tiger's mighty close to it and so that's what makes that so exciting to sit down and watch Tiger play and uh, but but Jack Jack is my favorite golfer I guess of all time and you know he built a course up in uh, Middle Tennessee there and, and and several of my friends were able to through certain things met him and and I'd never had a chance to meet him but uh, and he's he's a guy that. Uh, it would be on my bucket list to be able what, to be what made him to. your favorite just the way he uh conducted himself he was uh you know he he had just immense concentration i mean like a lot of young people have seen tiger play but they never really got to see jack when he was in his prime play and if you look at tiger now that's a whole lot like jack was when he played i mean he just but he conducted himself so well you'd never hear him uh when he hit poor shots you didn't hear him uh, curse or swear or throw his clubs down 
um, which was a real, for a kid, that was, it really showed me something. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, and in, in adversity, it, it teaches you in, in the face of adversity, uh, you know, how to handle yourself through that too. And, you know, both my kids played golf and went on to play college golf. Uh, both of them had, had great careers. My son played at, a, at, at Lipscomb University in Nashville. Oh, yeah. That's a great school. One of my best friends went there. Yeah, and he uh, graduated and got his master's from Lipscomb and played golf four years there. And he's the first uh, golfer in Lipscomb history. Once they went Division One. he won the first Division One tournament really? at Lipscomb. And then my daughter played at Belmont. Oh, and, yeah, uh, just up the boulevard from she there. She did. Yeah. She chose. She had uh, major offers from a lot of other bigger schools, SEC schools, but she chose to stay in Nashville. And uh, she set all of Belmont's records, and uh, she was out seven years. I think he had to set out six or seven years. And she came up on the ballot for their Hall of Fame because she set all their records, and she got inducted wow. into their Hall of Fame the first year. So I'm real, I was real proud of both of them for that, yeah. What are some um, things that the game of golf has prepared you for uh, this kind of second career in music that you've had? Oh, wow. Um, I don't really know. Um, I tell you what it really does for me though I love them both I love both golf and music I love teaching I really love teaching and I've been fortunate enough to have had a lot of great students that have gone on to great college careers and business careers later on and and um but I think now at this stage I see a lot of people that get get burnt out in their jobs and and I do a, I teach a lot and so the music takes me away from that and I kind of go into another world for a little while. It's like Jerry said tonight, you feel like you're six years old again. And, of course, normally on a, a, a Thursday, I'd be in my golf studio teaching all day. And today I was out walking the streets out here and finding places to eat and playing music with guys that I enjoy being around and having fun with. And I'll do that for the next three or four days, and I'll go back next week and go back into my studio, and I'll be all recharged and ready to go back and teach golf again. It's, I'm ready to get kind of away from the music for a few days, and I'm kind of just off, on and off doing that, you know. So I think it really helps in that regard. Yeah. You said that uh, you're glad that you can carry on your dad's style of fiddle playing to this next generation. What are some things that you hope that uh, young kids can learn about your dad's style of fiddle playing through you? Uh, you know, he played a style. I don't know how you would describe it. I know it's an old-time style, but when he would play, it just made you want to move. You, I mean, you, you do move when you yeah, play. Yeah, I do. I can't stand still. I mean, I kind of I wish I could stand still and play it, but it's like I want to move. And even if I'm not playing it, when I start hearing that, it's kind of a happy – it takes me to a happy place. And I think maybe that could be possibly because it's my dad, but I, I talk to other people that listen to it, and, and they call it a happy fiddle. And it's just something that uh, he's made a lot of people happy over the years, listening to, to that music. And, and I want people uh, to do something that I know that they will enjoy doing. And I think if they ever really sit down and start playing that, that type of fiddle and listen to what he does, I think it'll be a blessing in their life. And, uh, and I want it to live on, too. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know which would come first. I want people to be blessed by it, but I want that music to live on as well. So, I, I probably both. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, uh, Daniel, man. I sure appreciate you having me here. I mean, I, I, I appreciate you and everything that you do with this music. And, uh, and you're blazing with this. And, uh, and one of these days after I'm long gone, you're still going to be around. And uh, I, I, I just wish you all the best. 
Oh, thanks so much. Oh, well, thank you so much. That means a lot. Thank you. Absolutely. So you've heard us talk about Samson's Hair Care's hair pomade with its all-day hold and signature smell. Now they have something for the other hair on your face, your beard. Fellas, I don't know about you, but I love sporting a beard. It makes me feel so manly, and let's face it, the ladies love it. However, what they don't love is a beard that's unkempt and out of control, and when you're scratching all day like a dog. That's where Samson's Hair Care can help you. They have a brand new beard balm and beard oil to help you regain control of your beard. The beard oil is all about stopping irritation. It makes the beard softer and moisturizes the skin underneath so you're not scratching all day. They also have their beard balm, which helps you regain control of your beard, help it lay the way it's supposed to so you don't have them wiry hairs sticking out, and it makes your beard softer as well. They have a brand new beard balm and beard oil at samsonshaircare.com, and they know that bluegrassers need to look sharp. So that's why if you use code BLUEGRASS, you'll save 10% off whether you want the beard oil, the beard balm, the uh, Samson's Hair Care Pomade, or all three. Check it out at samsonshaircare.com. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 10% off. It's all at samsonshaircare.com. Code BLUEGRASS. Had a blast visiting with Johnny Warren of the Earls of Leicester on this episode of the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. His dad, Hall of Fame fiddler Paul Warren, was a longtime member of Flat and Scruggs and the Foggy Mountain Boys. It was really cool to interview him backstage at Memorial Hall in Cincinnati, just a few blocks away where Flat and Scruggs made some of their first records, including Foggy Mountain Breakdowns. That was extra special. Yeah, I bet that was a great experience and a great place to interview him. Uh, fascinating interview really especially hearing about you know uh mention of fiddling legends and early old-time fiddlers like fiddling arthur smith and those old tunes they used to play in the oral traditions and all the tunes that uh his dad paul uh heard and probably forgot and just sort of fantasizing about all those lost tunes and it's just so interesting to me and how these, how this music was preserved, especially back then before we had a whole lot of uh, prolific recording ability. Paul Warren's always been one of my favorite fiddlers and he brought such a unique element to the flat and scrug sound. And I love how Johnny kind of talked about that. His style of fiddling was a lot different than, uh, than Chubby Wise and, you know, that played with on so many classic recordings with Monroe, Benny Martin, who played on some of the early flat and scrugs records as well. Paul brought a different style and a different take, and I love that Johnny Warren is out there making sure that style of fiddling doesn't go away. Yeah, like Johnny mentioned, it's all about chemistry, the chemistry you have with the other folks you're playing with and uh, the dance style that his dad played and ultimately uh, Johnny plays too, just the foot tapping. When we think of traditional bluegrass fiddling, uh, so often we think of uh, Paul and now Johnny Warren. So, yeah, great stuff there. Flat and Scruggs were such innovators, and it was so key. And it's, nowadays, when a lot of bluegrass can almost sound homogenized, back then, for Flat and Scruggs to go out on their own, they knew they would automatically be compared with Opry star Bill Monroe, their former boss. So to find ways to make themselves unique and to stand out, 
um, they were very conscientious in every decision they made when it came to their music. And bringing in Paul Warren, whose fiddling would sound unique on the radio, just added another weapon to their arsenal when it came to differentiating themselves from other uh, acoustic bands of the time. So, love Flat and Scruggs, of course. Love the Earls of Leicester and their mission in preserving the Foggy Mountain sound. Um, and I love that Johnny Warren is also a professional golf instructor. Who would have thought, like, you know, I- I'm always jealous of people that are uber-talented at one thing, let alone more than one thing. Like, how are you that great of a fiddle player, but also an amazing golf player as well it's just not fair it's called having a backup plan and i'm <laughs> thankful he had one yeah no i didn't know that about uh, johnny it was fascinating to hear about how he had um you know been able to raise a family uh, have a career in golf and also uh, have a career in music uh because it was just you know in his blood it's something that he had to do um uh, and the stories of him getting together and playing one-on-one in the living room with Earl Scruggs and all that. Oh, I thought it was so neat also that his mom ended up marrying Curly Seckler. Yeah. That's a neat story, too. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of Foggy Mountain history today from the only PGA professional to win a Grammy Award, Johnny Warren. Next week, we're going to get a lot of bluegrass history as well as uh, we talk to the legendary Kitsy Kuykendall. This is a great episode. Uh, Kitsy talks a lot about um, Pete starting Bluegrass Unlimited uh, and some of the recordings that he made early on in his career, black blues musicians in the South, and uh, how the magazine came to be. And it's just great to get Kitsy's uh, perspective on the bluegrass scene and uh, the uh, development of editorial magazines and how they're being replaced a lot of times with... uh, online reading and online editorials but uh kitsy's just real joy and it's a great uh, interview i believe you got it uh, bma last year is that right daniel that's correct that's correct and it's uh it's very cool to talk to kitsy of course her husband the late pete kikendall started bluegrass unlimited which a lot of people refer to as the rolling stone of bluegrass we heard dudley connell talking about flipping through one of his first issues of bluegrass unlimited just a couple weeks ago on season one sierra hall talked about how she fawned over the pages of bluegrass unlimited as a kid so it's such a great resource and such a Uh, important part of our music's history. So it's great to talk to Kitsy to learn more about the history of that magazine and the impact of of her and her husband, uh, the late Pete Kuykendall. That's next time on the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Be sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and more. Go to our website, wallsoftimepodcast.com, where you can listen and learn more, and you can buy one of our cool new super soft golden yellow Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast t-shirts. That's right. We're on social media. Also, Walls of Time podcast on Facebook and Instagram, Walls of Time pod on Twitter. And look for our playlist for uh, this show with Johnny Warren. It's going to be a lot of great uh, old Flat and Scruggs songs and some uh, new stuff. We hear the Earls of Leicester. We're going to make a great playlist for this episode and uh, the episodes going forward. So be sure to check those out as well. Until next time, thanks for listening.